You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Fabian Nisiesa. Fabian is a comic book writer and editor who is best known as the co-creator of Marvel's Deadpool, and for his work on titles such as X-Men, X-Force, New Warriors, Cable, and Thunderbolts, not to be confused with Thundercats. Ho. He is the author of Suburban Dicks, a finalist for the Edgar Award for Best First Novel by an American Author, and he joins me today to talk about his latest novel, The Self-Made Widow, which has been called a diabolically funny murder mystery featuring two unlikely sleuths investigating a murder that reveals the dark underbelly of suburban marriage. That sounds interesting. I can't wait to talk more about it. Uh, <laughs> but before we do, I have to welcome Fabian to Uncorking a Story. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Fabian. It is great to be here, Mike. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you here. So uh, Fabian, I'm going to ask you, uh, my first question is always, uh, tell me, where does your story as a writer begin? Uh, my story as a writer begins when I was four years old and I immigrated. I got you as a pre-kindergarten. <laughs> uh, uh, my family immigrated to the United States from Argentina. Um, and the first things my brother and I really recognized, my older brother and I recognized, were Batman and Superman comics on the corner newsstands of the streets of Queens, New York. Um, and we begged our parents to buy the comics. And that got us on a journey of first learning how to read and write English far faster because we were looking at you know, buying the comics. And then a love of storytelling, uh, a love of the visual medium of comics, and, and my interest in developing and crafting my own stories. So by the time I was 10 years old, I was already writing my own stories and trying to draw them. I was always an artist, but never a good enough artist, certainly to be a professional, um, but always a good enough artist that I could put down on paper what I had in mind. Um, and in fact, some characters I, I, I created for Marvel Comics were ones that I'd had in my notebooks since you know middle school and high school. Um, so I continued to write and draw all through uh, elementary school, high school, and it was in high school where I realized, um, first, I wanted to be a writer, but second, uh, I looked at the pictures of the authors on the back of the paperback books I was reading, and all of them were old. They all seemed to be at least 35 years old. So there was no way I realized that I'm going to be a writer once I finish high school. So honestly, which some people never learn this lesson, at a young age, I, I realized I have to get myself into a position where I get an opportunity to become a writer. 
and, and then find the opportunities to be kind of kind of writer I want to be, whether that be comic books or books or or, or television or whatever. Um, so I graduated from Rutgers University with a degree in communications, public relations and advertising. I tried to get a job at an ad agency to work on ad copy um, and I couldn't get a job there, but I got a job in book publishing at Berkeley Publishing, which was the sister uh, paperback company of Putnam Publishing, which is the hard company, which happens to have been my publisher for my two books uh, many years later. Um, I worked at Berkeley for two years and found out about a job at Marvel Comics. I applied for it and I got it. And once I was Marvel's advertising manager, which was great because I was doing, I was doing at Marvel what I went to college to do um, and, and at a comic book company, which is what 10-year-old Fabian always wanted to do. Um, once I was at Marvel, little by little, I got to know the editors and the kinds of things they liked out of stories. And then I just got, I grabbed hold of the opportunities that were presented to me and started selling my stories, my writing to Marvel. And, and little by little, just sold more and more writing to Marvel uh, to the point where being a professional writer was my actual profession, uh, not just a freelance side gig to my staff job. Uh, and I was on staff at Marvel for 10 years. How did how did they take it? You know, um, how did the creatives at Marvel take it with with the advertising guy coming in and and starting to to kind of go on go into that side of the business? Was it a warm welcome or? or I was got there... it. Mike, that is uh, I'm not kidding. That is a great question, and I, I've rarely been asked it in 35 years of doing this. Um, there was a huge divide. That time at Marvel, which is 1985, 86, there was a huge divide at Marvel between editorial and sales. Um, and that was born as much of personalities involved as anything else. Uh, there was a, a, a member of the direct sales department who had broken the barrier for the most part on, on selling their writing to editorial. His name was Peter David. He's still an active writer of novels and, and comics today. Uh, Peter was an assistant in the in the direct sales department, and he started selling Spider-Man stories. And Peter was an incredibly gifted writer. And some editors saw that right off the bat, whereas other editors were really wary because he was from sales, you know. Um, so Peter, in some ways, paved the way for me because when I first started selling stories, um, it was honestly to to an editor that was in desperate need for fill-in issues on a title that was horrifically late on the schedule. So that's how desperate he was that he, he stopped the guy from advertising the promotion and publicity department in the hallway and said, um, said you wanted to write, didn't you? I said, oh yeah, Bob, if I get a chance, I, I, wouldn't, I, I want an opportunity. I sold the story to Jim, but, but the new editor who took over for him, Candid, it's a you know, backstory. My first comic book sale for Marvel was actually a Spider-Man story, but the editor who bought it was fired before the story was ever sent out to an artist and the new editor didn't like the story, so he killed it. So I, you know, I, that, it was a learning experience for me too to watch my first story get killed um so so i i started writing internally and the truth of the matter is there were changes internally at marvel um, on the, uh, at the upper echelons of the editorial department and the relationships between sales new people coming into sales and, and a new promotion department starting with me as a part of it that those new people coming to sales myself and new editorial leadership really changed the dynamic at the company uh, marvel in the late 80s was an incredibly uh, positive vibrant forward moving 
operation. Uh, sales were increasing on a yearly basis. Um, there was far better synergy between the departments than there had been in the early and mid 80s. Uh, much of that is simply born of the personalities of the people in charge. Um, when you're more collaborative in nature and more open and positive and receptive in nature, it's going to just usually lend to a much better work environment for people than, than demagoguery or dictatorial approaches. Um, so it, I, I, honestly, it was a bit of a golden time. Like my late 20s and my early 30s were just a phenomenally fun, entertaining uh, learning experience. I made a lot of money writing comic books, which was not something I ever expected to do. But we were selling so much that writers, the creative people got royalties off of sales. And we were selling, you know, 500,000 copies of our some of our monthly books. Um, so it was a pretty damn good run for sure. Um, yeah. A lot of pressure though. I used to have hair um, <laughs> and I'm not kidding. It literally all flew out of my head, like within a five year period because of the amount of stress we were under. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me about the, the genesis um, of, uh, of Deadpool. And, and I have to ask because I mean, unless people are, are have been living under a rock um, Marvel owns pretty much, pretty much owns the movies now. Um, but out of all the Marvel movies I've seen, and, and with my three kids, I've got triplets, we've seen them all. Um, the Deadpool movies to me are, are my favorite. Now, I don't know how much, you know, interaction you had with, with the making of the films, but I'm really curious about the genesis of that character. Um, I know you're the co-creator. How did, how did you, how did that character come to you? Well, the, the, the character was created by Rob Liefeld, who was plotting and penciling the books. He wasn't going to dialogue it because he was really young and the editor thought that someone with a little more experience um, in scripting would be better served working on the book with him. So they asked me if I would, if I would dialogue script off of Rob's plots and pencils, which meant I had no control over the story. I only had control over how, how the dialogue helped bridge the, 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 the plot and the pacing and, and characterization. Um, and Rob in his character designs for Deadpool had described him to me verbally as Spider-Man meets Punisher. And because he's an artist, he really meant that visually. He looks like Spider-Man, which he does, but like Punisher and knives, you know? Um, and when it came time for me to script the first appearance of Deadpool, I decided let's let's actually make that literal. Let's make him a wise ass. Spider-Man is all about his anti-authoritarian approach and nature while he's in the middle of, of his action and fight scenes, you know? Um, and, and he does that as much to uh, disarm and disengage his opponent, Spider-Man does, because Spider-Man's persona is a freeing of Peter Parker's insecurities and shyness. Right. So I made Deadpool a wise ass as much to reflect off of the main character of the comic, which was Cable. He was the star of the book and Cable was played by Josh Brolin in the second movie. Um, and Cable is a very stoic, stern, grim military guy from the future. And Deadpool is a mercenary who won't shut up. And that annoys Cable. So I was really doing it more for Cable than I was with any real vested interest in Deadpool. So I just made him a merc with a mouth, uh, which is a, a term I coined a few years, a couple of years later in a miniseries. Um, we had to figure out why he was like this as we went along. And I, I did a lot of the heavy lifting on that in his first solo miniseries that I wrote. Um, and 
and that, sorry, phone rang right next to me. Um, you know, the only reason the landline ever rings anymore is for spam for crying out loud. So, That's right. Um, yeah. Somebody wants to sell you an auto warranty. Yeah, yeah it, I, it's amazing how many warranties of mine are expiring on my auto, which has no warranty. Go figure. Um, so so I, um, I, I just developed the character within the character. Uh, as we went along, and I did a lot of the heavy lifting in that first limited series because that's where we decided that he, he had a horrific skin condition. Visually, he was scarred as a result of his perpetual cellular regeneration. He had the cellular regeneration um, because he went to try to find a cure for his cancer. And I did the cancer bit because my mother-in-law had fought cancer for years and, and she had one time told me that she would do anything if she could have gotten rid of the disease. And, and, and I took that literally in my fiction that he, Deadpool was willing to sacrifice his humanity in order to save his life. So there's a bit of tragedy there with the humor, which I always wanted. Yeah. Um, so so the, the template became Bugs Bunny meets Frankenstein's monster. And it wasn't that initially, it developed into that. And then certainly subsequent writers over the years really did a great job of developing and building on that. And then I wrote the character again for many years in 2004 in a comic called Cable and Deadpool. And that's when Ryan Reynolds really became familiar with the character. Yeah. And issue number two of that book, which came out in 2004, um, I had Deadpool describe himself as looking like a cross between Ryan Reynolds and a Sharpay. And I had to actually re, um, I had to actually change the spelling of Ryan's last name in the comic because Marvel's legal department didn't want the real Ryan Reynolds to get upset about this. And I was like, are you kidding me? So the real Ryan Reynolds actually found out about it, became super curious about the character, which he'd been aware of, but not that familiar with. And said to himself, "Hey, this could be my my movie franchise," <laughs> and that's why he took a supporting role in the Wolverine movie, which, quite frankly, was so badly done and such a disservice to the character that it almost put the kibosh on Ryan ever being being able to make a movie for as many years. The script to the first Deadpool movie was written like several years before the movie even went into production. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, I, I basically. Ryan should be sending me a free bottle of gin every single month, but he's not <laughs> fine. Well, it's okay. I can, I can track um, him down. He doesn't live too far from where I live. You know what? Be better than a bottle of gin every month. Just tell him to, to pimp my books on social media with his following. That'll, that'll equal plenty of sales. <laughs> you know, as, as much as I love this, the Ryan Reynolds backstory there, and I think that's really cool. What really is sticking with me is that story about your mother-in-law battling cancer and that seed she planted within you saying, hey, if, if I could have done anything to get rid of this, I would have. And that seed, of course, blossomed in the form of, you know, the, the Deadpool storyline. Um, and I think one thing as authors, like we, we see the world a little bit differently. We we remember certain things that, you know, we we kind of park that 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 come to fruition or, or pay dividends, if you will kind of later on is is that what happened i mean what was the timeline well, between your mother mother-in-law saying uh, that and you using my mom my mother-in-law passed away in uh, 990 and deadpool uh, was scripted in late 91 and released in 92 i also i had another character in a different book i was writing uh, called alpha flight i had this female character named diamond lil and she was um bulletproof 
uh, invulnerable. Her skin couldn't be penetrated. And I did a storyline where she was afraid, where she thought she had breast cancer and they couldn't biopsy her, her breast tissue because they couldn't penetrate her skin. So that was a way to take real life and turn it into, into a fictional construct. Um, so, so yeah, that, that my mom, my, since my, my mother-in-law um, fought the, the disease for seven years, um, it, it was kind of a, a real foundation for me because uh, that, that all took place during my 20s. My, I met my, my, my eventual wife when I was 19 and she was 17 and we've been together since. So we went through all of this together. Yeah. Um, her, her, her mom, her mom's illness, we went through together. Um, and, and, and it was a very important touchstone. I actually, I actually, the same exact creative impetus fueled both my novels. Um, both books are based on different aspects of things that were happening to me in real life. Um, at the time, which I then extrapolated into fiction, um, self-made widow uh, it is is about a character Andrea Stern investigating the death of a gas station attendant, which she finds out may be linked to a murder that might have happened 50 years ago that has been covered up by township and police officials. Well, the impetus of that book was uh, in the house I moved into a new new construction development. We had a gun club on the other side of the pond, and the gun club had been there for 50 years. Uh, which, okay, it had been there for 50 years, buyer beware, except buyer didn't know that occasionally they'd lob bullets our way. And, and my house was struck, my neighbor's house was struck, we found bullets on my driveway, um, because our backyards faced the pond, which faced the burns. Um, we tried to stop them from outdoor shooting in the town council, and we lost 5-4, the vote. So they, could, they were able to continue outdoor shooting. And the way my brain works, I have a really good friend of mine at the time who was also a writer who said, you know, I know a guy who burns things. And he was implying he literally could have gotten an arsonist to burn the gun club down if I wanted. And he was serious. And I said, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not where my brain goes. Uh, I created a fictional story wherein the gun club has something revealed about them that puts them out of business. You know, like that was the original impetus for Suburban Fix, my right. revenge, my fictional revenge on this gun club. And the story evolved quite a bit over time, but that was 1995 where I originally had the impetus for the book. The Self-Made Widow, the second book, is, is about the, the husband of one of Andrea's friends dying in his sleep of natural causes. He has a heart attack, but he's only 43 years old. So even though the doctors say he had a pre-existing condition, many of, of, of um, the husband's friends didn't know about it. That's predicated. The original impetus of that idea for me was in, in 90, 96, was it when a very close friend of mine passed away of a heart attack. He was 43 years old. He was in excellent shape and, and a vegetarian, but he had a pre-existing heart condition, which many of us didn't know about. And in our dark humor way, I, uh, one of my friends, I swear it wasn't me, one of my friends said, what if his wife killed him? And that, that actually got my brain rolling for the sequel to the book I hadn't even written yet back then, <laughs> you know? So these stories have been percolating in me and evolving over the course of 20 years, you know? Well, you know, um, I think, you know, you made that observation before where, you know, as a young kid looking at the back of books, you're seeing older people, you know, those are the authors are older. And I think you do need a fair amount of life experience to craft, you know, a finely tuned, honest, um, 
you know, story. Um, yeah, I, I, I really didn't mean that much older, Mike. <laughs> I didn't mean selling, having your first book published the year you turned 60. That's going overboard, okay? That's, that, that was just me being a coward. It was honestly, it was just creative insecurity. I was never happy with my prose. I was a, I'm a, I've been a professional writer for 35 years. I've earned yeah. a living as a writer. I've paid for my mortgage and put my kids through college as a writer, but I was never satisfied and confident in my prose over the course of many, many years. Um, well, it, well, it really was, it really was the impetus of, of asking myself, if I don't do it now, when am I ever going to do it? I don't yeah. want that to be a regret that not, not selling a book and not having a book published not even finishing a book would have been my regret, you know? Um, so, so I started a book that I hoped I would finish and, and it was Suburban Dicks and I did end up finishing it. So I was really, really, it was a, as much personal validation as anything else, this whole process. The last couple of years, the roller coaster has just been as much satisfaction that I was able to do it as, as any measure of sales success or review success or award nominations. It, it was just... Dan, you finally finished the book you started and you didn't hate it. Good, good job. That was it. You know. <laughs> well, what, what did you learn about yourself and, and, and even the differences between, you know, what you had been writing and then writing, you know, long form prose? Like I imagine with that first book, the learning curve is pretty steep. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'd written prose before and I'd gotten pretty far in, in some cases. I was contracted to write a book uh, in the early aughts based on a Marvel character for a licensed publisher. And I got 250, 275 pages into that manuscript. And then Marvel pulled the licensing deal. So the, the publisher killed six books at one time and mine was one of them. Um, and I'm glad that that wasn't my first published book uh, because I, 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 in hindsight, I would have preferred it not being comic book based novel. You know, um, I, I, I learned a lot of lessons writing in all the different formats and platforms that I've written in that I, that I was able to bring to bear. The truth though, is I learned a lot more writing the first book and, and needing to cut trim and rewrite the first book that helped inform and, and, and infuse my writing of the second book. My yeah. second book was so much easier for me as a writer than my first book was. Um, not the least of which, I wrote the first book not as my regular thing. It was a side thing. So there were several days a week where I didn't work on the book at all. I just picked at it a little at a time. Sometimes even 15, 20 minutes as a thought came to me. Sometimes I say, I'm taking all of Wednesday and I'm just writing the book, you know? Um, so, so it was a different process because I started it like in November of 2017 and I finished it in January of 2019. And, and then I had a freelance editor read it and give me advice. And she offered multiple suggestions on what I needed to cut, where I needed to cut. I'd overwritten by a hundred pages much of that was repetition of information. Um, and and it, I, I learned what I needed to, how I needed to convey information um, to the reader that the character, the, uh, the characters don't know and how to convey information to the characters that the reader already knows. That, that was something that um, took a little bit of finessing on my part. Uh, for example, if, uh, if Andrea learns something on page 50, but she's not going to see Kenny until page 90, I had her telling Kenny everything she already learned on page 50. 
And I did that a lot because the characters were on two separate tracks for their investigation. And then it, you take a step back, you realize, wait, the readers already know what she's telling them on page 90 because they were with her when she learned it on page 50. So you have to figure out the shortcuts to all of that, you know? And that meant cutting, 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 cutting. <laughs> so I cut uh, 150 pages roughly out of the original manuscript. Um, before it was even presented to an agency to represent me, they wanted me to cut more before it was sold to a publisher, and they wanted me to cut more. So my 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 poor baby was just skin and bones. Um, but by the second, by the time of the second book, I really felt just far more comfortable and confident. I was on. I was writing to a contract, so I was writing to a schedule. I, I wrote it from March of 2020 to November of 2020. So I finished the entire first draft of the manuscript in that time period. While everyone else was pandemic crazy those first several months, I had four other people in my house besides me. I just, I'm in the corner of my bedroom right now. That's a, That's where I wrote a lot of The Self-Made Widow because it's basically as far away from everyone else in the house as I could get. <laughs> this yeah. corner in this chair right here is as far away from my wife, my son who came home from college, my daughter whose job went on hiatus, and my sister-in-law who, who moved in with us during that time period. They were all here when I was writing The Self-Made Widow. That, 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 those are some close quarters right there. Uh, yeah, well. yeah, Mike, it kind of sucks. <laughs> I, I swear I, I probably would have gone nuts if I didn't have a book to write. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I guess you're fortunate that, you know, life didn't imitate art and and she your wife made herself a self-made widow, you know? Yeah, no, that, yes, that would have been very would, unfortunate for and then me. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So. No, but she'd be really happy right now. <laughs> Yeah, because now you're doing all the promotion for it. <laughs> no, because she would have gotten the life insurance. <laughs> ah, really... well, th there's that. She there's that. <laughs> well, maybe that can inspire another storyline at some point. So. <laughs> um, well, very good. I, I do have a you know a few specific questions I want to ask again under the spirit of uh, getting to know you uh, as a as a person as a writer. Uh, I always like to start off with this one, which is um, Fabian. What were some of your favorite TV shows when you were growing up? What did you like to watch? Oh, wow. When I was really little, um, uh, I Dream a Genie, uh, because hell, Barbara Eden, uh, the Batman TV show, uh, cartoons like Speed Racer, um, uh, even silly stuff like Scooby-Doo and Magilla Gorilla. Um, as I started to get older, I really, I really at a young age was really in, uh, enjoying a lot of the CBS uh, sitcoms that were on on Saturday nights back then. Uh, All in the Family, Mary Tyler Moore, MASH. Um, as I got older, um, I, I probably gravitated more towards uh, dramas and police dramas. I was a very early adopter and loved Hill Street Blues because it was so different than oh. anything else that was being done on TV at the time. That Steven, Steven Bochco. Yeah. Steven Bochco, man, he had a pre, string of hits. Yeah, he did. And then for me, this was pre-Betamax recorders and it was on saturday nights because they buried it on saturday nights at 10 when i was like in late high school and i wanted to go out and yet hill street blues was on so <laughs> there were lots of lots of struggles with that and, and i missed several episodes that i had to rewatch on reruns um it was a very different age back then folks if you didn't watch it when it first aired sometimes you never got to see it um so so th those were all things i really enjoyed i started to just gravitate towards the higher quality hbo dramas that, that were being done. I, I watch way too much TV now. 
I, I prefer that more over movies nowadays. Um, and, and I watch so much of so many different things that um, I, I could be perfectly happy watching Hacks on HBO Max, which is a f- fantastic show with Gene Smart. Oh, yeah. and, and I could watch Stranger Things. And two, two shows couldn't be more different than each other, but I can enjoy each of them equally for what they are. Yeah, I agree. I, Hill Street Blues, probably one of the best theme songs. Um, you yeah, know, yeah, that, yeah. That, that'll Mike get stuck Post. in your head. Yeah. yeah Mike, he, po- Mike Post was writing all the theme songs back then. I, I liked it because it was, um, it was, uh, just a clear decision on the part of the creators that they were going to do something different than how they had been done up to that point. Uh, that was a police show that was unlike any other police show that had been put on air. Uh, and, and it had this, this, this complicated, complex weaving tapestry of storylines and characters. It was the precursor to the HBO shows. It was a precursor to The Wire. Um, and, and Hill Street Blues did it um, really, really well. It, it, you may not be able to watch it today the same way because you've already seen so many superlative dramas that took that style and 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 enhanced and improved upon it uh, because it was still commercial TV on a network, so they they were hamstrung in some ways. But I, I recommend it to anyone who likes uh, police procedurals or, or 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 complex dramatic storytelling. Do you think? Um... Just to go back to the first one you mentioned, I Dream a Genie. Do you think that show would ever have a chance of, of being made today? No, neither <laughs> would Hogan's Heroes when you come right down to it, right? <laughs> think about that. No, um, that there is good and bad to that, in my opinion. Uh, that there's, there's a good reason why you shouldn't be doing a comedy show about a Nazi prison camp or a comedy show about a man who owns a woman in a bikini you know living in a bottle who services his every wish um but there there is also context uh, to to how things are done and approached um there is a different um there is a different sensibility to different times um for the same token you you couldn't you couldn't do a roadrunner cartoon nowadays you probably couldn't do half the bugs bunny episodes that were done you know, back then nowadays. And, and if I didn't have Bugs Bunny as a foundational religious uh, aspect of my life, I honestly don't know that, that it's a life I'd want to live. I mean, I don't, so people, people are, are denied things for the sake of their protection or, or their, their, their safety that, that ultimately, if you're capable of thinking about two diametrically opposed thoughts at the same time, which way too many of us are incapable of doing nowadays, then you can place context to whatever it is you're reading or watching um, and and understand it either for the time period it's being done, the audience it's being done. Guess what? Not everything is done for you, 35-year-old man boys who who wanna bomb IMDB for Ms. Marvel on Disney Plus, because God forbid a show about a 16-year-old Pakistani-American girl isn't meant for your 40-year-old white boy sensibilities, you know? Um, that That's the context that people are incapable of applying to things. We've just gotten to a point where everything has to be about me, my viewing experience, and I didn't like it. Well, you're, you're just one individual viewer among an audience of thousands or millions, right? 
So how important really is your individual subjective interpretation of art, both to the creators of the art and the overall totality of the audience? Yeah. You know, I know you mentioned Hogan's Heroes there. Um, I don't know if you've seen it on Paramount Plus. It's a limited series called The Offer about the making of The Godfather. I'm watching it regularly. Yeah, the last I, episode for the season. The last. I know. I, I'm, I'm going to be. I'm going to be depressed when uh, you know on Thursday night. Not, uh, Mike, spoiler alert: the movie came out. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I'm actually going to the Tribeca Film Festival tomorrow night, and I'm seeing. Oh, are you? I'm seeing The Godfather, and Pacino is a panelist. So I, I. I'm, oh, that's fantastic! It's going to be the highlight of my week. We just went to Princeton last night after dinner, and and we because uh, my sister-in-law was visiting, and she's leaving tomorrow uh, today, and she wanted to get ice cream at Thomas Sweet in Princeton. So we went into Princeton, and they're showing The Godfather two times a week at yeah. the Princeton uh, small theater in the Princeton. I couldn't believe it. I haven't seen yeah. the original movie in a theater since I was ten years old. My parents took me to go see it. Me and my brother. Um, I saw it when it originally came out, and the but- thought that it's being shown in theaters again is fantastic. But I, br- I bring it, I bring it up uh, the offer because there's a great scene in, in I think it's the first or second episode where they do the pitch for Hogan's Heroes. So you know Al Ruddy who winds up producing yeah. The Godfather and, and just yeah. watching that pitch was uh, was kind of funny because I always wondered like how did they sell the idea of that show into into network executives because it is a little. Uh, a little different but but mike you you want to know how they did it it was 20 years after world war ii and and everyone was still very fresh and having lived it and by by infantilizing it by making fun of it and marginalizing it it was a way of coping with the atrocity of it yeah right by by diminishing and minimizing who these people were, it was a way for the people who actually lived it and endured it of being able to get over it and cope with it. That's why Mel Brooks did the humor he did, you know. And and, and if you, but now you'd never be able to do it because it, it's taken on a completely different context for our lives and the people who actually lived it, you know. Yeah. Um, so so. Yeah, that's why. I, I, it's not that I liked Hogan and Zeros. I never really did, but but I understand why it was it was the number one rated show in the country for a while, right? Yeah, sure. And it's because this was so fresh in people's minds that they enjoyed watching a, a, a horrific aspect of human nature be shown as buffoons and idiots. Yeah. And I'm not saying that it would be appropriate today, but it's understandable why it was back then. And I think the interesting thing that I that I learned um, was that all of the the actors who played the Germans were all Jewish. Um, oh, were they? Yeah, that's that, what I, yeah. I, I heard that uh, on some interview. Don't quote me on it. Allegedly, I don't know. I, I don't want to get in trouble uh-huh. here, but I think I heard that. Um, moving on, uh, musical. We're talking about TV shows. How about musical artists when you were growing up? What, what did you like to listen to? Oh, um, I I I. Uh... I, uh, early adopter was was Beatles. That was everything in the late '60s. Um, I, I I I started getting into Led Zeppelin uh, in the early '70s. My first concert ever was Led Zeppelin at Madison Square Garden. And that's in, got in that's a cool first concert. Yeah, it was a cool first concert. Yeah, I was in eighth grade actually. The thought of my parents letting an eighth grader and his friend go into Manhattan from Old Bridge, New Jersey, uh, to go see a concert in the city—it's things we don't do anymore nowadays. But probably then, for like, like twelve bucks too, right? Like yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my, back then, my parents were like, "Okay, just be careful." Okay, and then off, I, off me and my friend went. Um, but but um, I, I started gravitating after a, a, a minor heavy metal phase and a really bad sticks phase and foreigner in Kansas phase. <laughs> 
Um, Foreigner in Kansas, I could live with, but Sticks was just an embarrassment. Yeah, there, there, right there's now. no defending Mr. Roboto. Um, they, they, well, no, that's that was actually the turning point. That was it. Once Mr. Roboto came out, I said, "Okay, that's it. I'm done." And I really was. I was done. Um, I, I was a little. I, I enjoyed Sticks a little earlier, but even so, I, I'm rationalizing. I, 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 there's no justification or excuse for it. Um, I, I, I heard the Clash. I heard London oh. calling and all that by the Clash, and that just got me going in that direction. I saw Elvis Costello on Saturday Night Live. And I, and I really was fascinated by his approach to music. So I started gravitating a lot towards um, English New Wave, English Punk, um, and, and, then, and then really uh, REM coming out uh, got me going in that direction. Uh, I really loved uh, early REM. Uh, I, I preferred it when you couldn't understand a single word Michael Stipe was singing uh, over over their more their successful phase when you could understand words he was singing. Um, so so I, I enjoyed all of that. I really honestly gravitated away and out of music by the late 90s. I just stopped. Midnight Oil is probably the last band that I really dug and got into. I went uh, at lunchtime at Marvel, me and a coworker found out that they were going to be doing um, a, a, a kind of an ambush concert in front of the Exxon building in Manhattan. And they, they performed for half an hour before the cops shut them down on a flatbed truck right in front of the Exxon building. And me and my friend went during Marvel lunch hour and we got to hear it. And it ended up being a video. You could see it on YouTube to this day. That it, it stopped traffic for like, you know, the block around them. There were a couple hundred people had all these business executives and suits and ties having no clue what the hell was going on. And me and my friend were in the crowd watching this. Um, but, but I just sort of, I, I don't know why I just wasn't, um, the older I got, once I had kids, the music wasn't resonating with me as much. And I kind of, I kind of, I want to, I don't want to say aged out of it. Cause that's silly. I just, I just gravitated away from it. And, yeah. and I haven't been that much of a music listener for the last 15 years plus. Yeah. I get mad at myself because I, I was very into to metal, uh, loved Iron Maiden, loved all the hair stuff too, you know, Def uh -huh. Leppard and poison and all that. And now I find myself listening to yacht rock and I don't know what happened to me. You know. <laughs> I will hum I'll, I'll, I'll go one better, Mike. I don't even know what yacht rock oh. is. Like I understand the combination of the two words, but I can, couldn't even tell you what the music is. <laughs> think, think like Christopher Cross, you know, oh, okay, 70s. Okay. Think 70s, you know, light rock. Yeah, okay. Um, so you basically you're saying you can't make fun of me for having like sticks is what it amounts to. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, I will say this. Tommy Shaw was great in a band called Damn Yankees where he was. Yes, with, he was. Uh, and Tommy Shaw, Tommy Shaw is what I really liked about sticks, yeah. quite honestly. His yeah. songs, his 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 lyric writing and his singing I preferred over anything else in the band. Yeah. In, in essence, it was Tommy Shaw's songs, despite most of the other songs that, <laughs> that, that I ended up really gravitating towards. Um, we do have to wrap uh, in, in a couple minutes. Um, one more question, though, I wanted to ask, which is um, if, if you could, you know, um, go back in time, right, get into your DeLorean, hit 88 miles an hour um, and and talk to that sort of younger Fabian, you know, who just came here from the United States, was into comic books, learning English by reading all these great comic books. Um, what words of advice would you give your younger self if you had the opportunity to do so? Um, I, I would probably say that every single dream you ever had is going to come true and they're going to come true sooner than you expected. So don't rest on your laurels and try new things, different things that you own and you control as soon as you possibly can. Um, 
because because ultimately companies can help make you, but they're gonna never help keep you and maintain you. So you have to do that for yourself. Um, and and ten year old me probably would have looked at me and said, "What the hell happened to your hair?" Um, <laughs> and that and not listen to a word of advice I gave him and end up doing the same exact thing I did. And, and it's a weird career in life I've had because my biggest regrets is that when I was having my greatest successes, I probably should have been doing more, not less. And it's absurd to even say that because I was doing so much. Um, yeah. and, and that's part of my personality is that, that I, I, um, and I bring it to some of the characters in my books too, Kenny, especially, um, it, you're never satisfied. It never seems to be enough. What the hell is wrong with you? You, you, you've done so much, you've accomplished so much. Why do you feel like you haven't done enough and you want to accomplish more, you know? Yeah. Well, very good. Excellent. Excellent words of advice. The book of course is the self-made widow available wherever, books are sold. Fabian, do you have any social media websites you want to share with the listeners? Yes, I can be always reached on Twitter because my DMs are open uh, until you say mean things to me. Uh, uh, at Fabian Nisiesa on Twitter. Uh, I can also be reached through my website, which is uh, FabianNisiesa.com. Uh, hopefully one day it will be the most misspelled URL on the planet. Um, and, and, and you can always contact me uh, and learn a little bit more about me, my upcoming appearance schedule, everything else, order the books through the website links, um, and, and you can get me through that as well. Very good, Fabian. This was a, a fun conversation. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you very much, Mike. If anyone told me we'd be talking about Tommy Shaw before we started, I would have said, really? Okay, let's go with it. <laughs> well, Thanks a lot, Mike. I like to keep people on your toes. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.